How's everybody? Okay, two of you are good. Awesome. It's good to see you all. <laughs> yes. It's good to see you. Some people are like, where have you been? You don't want to know. You'd like to know? Well, one, the first weekend I was gone, I was with this guy that was jumping up and down the whole time during worship. That's all he does for like three days. He just jumps up and down. So we went to Kansas City, had some fun, ate a lot of barbecue. If I look puffy, that's why. And then uh, last weekend we got invited, um, Lisa and I got invited to go back to our old church in Maui. I mean, we still came back. So they were celebrating their uh, 40th anniversary as a church. So they invited, um, they invited Lisa to speak, so, but she declined, so they settled for me. So it was, it was really, really a blessing to be there. And it's so cool to, um, to see what God has been doing in that church. God had a vision for that place. And there are so many, like, kids and families there now. It's just, it was... It was amazing, and so I had another weekend of eating a lot. So if I'm extra puffy, Lisa now has me on a fast. But tomorrow, as, as I was um, watching our kids get ready to go to Hume Lake, there was a lot of years I got on that bus with them. There was nothing in me that wanted to get on the bus anymore. <laughs> I'm like, God bless you, Miranda, Jeff, I empower you to go. Well, but we are going to head up this week just to be up there a little bit and have milkshakes. So I come to you. Pretty much the theme of my last three weeks has been feasting with the Lord. So, but it's really good to be back with you and continue on. And I loved, I loved being able to watch Danny preach a couple weeks ago. That was our brother Danny's first sermon that he gave, and it was awesome. And hearing Rob last week. Um, Next Sunday, we're blessed to have our good friend Steve Dang with us. He'll be preaching from the Book of Mark, so that'll be really cool. It's exciting during the summer to have different voices speaking into what God's Word uh, says, so we're excited about that. Here's today's scripture. A few days later, when Jesus again entered Capernaum, the people heard that he had come home. They gathered in such large numbers that there was no room left, not even outside the door. And he preached the word to them. Some men came, bringing to him a paralyzed man carried by four of them. Since they could not get him in to see Jesus, because of the crowd, they made an opening in the roof above Jesus by digging through it, and then lowered the man, the mat, the mat the man was lying on. When Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralyzed man, that is such a great phrase, when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralyzed man, son, your sins are forgiven. Now some teachers of the law were sitting there thinking to themselves, why does this fellow talk like that? He is blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? Immediately Jesus knew in his spirit that this was what they were thinking in their hearts. And he said to them, why are you thinking these things? Which is easier to say this to, to the paralyzed man, your sins are forgiven, or to say, get up your mat and walk. But I want you to know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. So he said to the man, I tell you, get up, take your mat, and go home. He got up. He took his mat 
and walked out in full view of them all. This amazed everyone and they praised God saying, we have never seen anything like this. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this morning. We thank you for this amazing story. Whether it is brand new to us or something we have heard, may you speak to our hearts. God, as we look at your word and Jesus, as we focus on what you said and what you did, may it be transformational for us in our lives today. We love you. In your name, amen. There is a social thought and belief that if you were struggling with a sin or a sin of your parents back at this time, it may show up physically on you. You may be paralyzed. You may have this physical view that you must have been in sin, that you are now paying the price for some secret sin in your life by evidence of your outward appearance. This wasn't one of those things that was like a uh, passed on down from your forefathers, kind of this, this uh, influence or this stronghold. But this was a physical punishment, they believed. You know, maybe it was their way the religious leaders used to explain suffering in this world. Maybe they were perplexed and said, suffering is taking place because this man did something wrong. It most likely didn't give much space for any other option. We see an example of this very kind of thought in another gospel, in the gospel of John. It's talking about when Jesus was walking along with his disciples and it says this. As he went along, meaning Jesus, he saw a man blind from birth. Then his disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Gives kind of proof and context to how they thought. And even though Jesus clarified this was not always the case, he said this, Neither this man nor his parents sinned, he said, but this happened so that the works of God might be displayed in him. But this can still happen today. We can often say something must have happened for this person to be this way. We say things like they must have done something to deserve this. We say things like they must have had bad parents for them to end up this way. We say things like their secret sins are coming to light. They're just reaping what they sowed. We say things they're not healed because they have no faith. That they lack faith. Their belief system must just be off enough. But Jesus continually says this. I came to go after the hearts and minds of people. That I can do something even amazing. My works will show up. When you think their physical ailments is because of what they have done, I'm going to do something with that very thing. Jesus continually looks at the hearts and mind. For example, when Jesus first came, and we see this in the book of Mark, his first message, if you remember, was basically really simple. Repent, the kingdom of God is here. This word repent in the original Greek is metanoia. Now that may not mean anything to you, but what that word gets translated as is to turn around and go the other way. Meaning this, if you are sinning and you're heading in a certain direction, like you're doing the things you want to do and you're heading in a direction, to repent means to stop and go the opposite way. Or to go some way. But have you ever wondered which way should we be going? 
I don't know if it's like for you, but I remember struggling with this at times, and I felt like my life was a bit of a ping-pong match. Okay, repent, go back this way. Oop, that was the wrong way. Oh, this is the wrong way. But if we look at the etymology of that word, which means what does that word actually mean and expose, the word meta, the first part of the word is beyond, and new actually means mind. So it goes beyond your present way of thinking. What Jesus is saying when he says to repent is to turn around, but he's also saying this. How you are currently thinking about this situation, pull back to a bigger perspective and see it for what it is. Because when we repent, when we pull back and go, there is nothing there for me. Why would I continue after that sin? It's not just seeing the cheese, it's seeing the trap. So when Jesus says to repent in your mind, in your heart, it's not just these physical responses. He's like, think about this differently. Think about this for what it is. If you were to participate in that, where is that going to lead you? There's nothing there for you. Jesus is saying, look at this sin. See, if, see if it for what it really is. And in this story that we just looked at, he literally steps into his death sentence by helping a man and helping these people see something bigger than what was obvious. First of all, we see this man. We don't really know much about this man really at all, so I'm projecting a little bit. But I'm imagining if you grew up in an environment where your physical ailment was connected to something you did or something that your parents did to you or for you or on behalf of you in sin, that could cause a lot of shame, couldn't it? That you wake up in the morning and you still realize that you can't move because of something that you had done, become a, some kind of curse that was passed on to you. Think about what would go on in your head. Would you think much of yourself or would it be like, oh, I deserve this. I need to pay the price for this. To be in an environment like that potentially when you go out and you may not be able to work so you're begging and you see people walk by you with kind of this casting of shame like, he must have done something. Even like that story that we saw in the book of John, where like who sinned, him or his parents? Like he deserves this. To be in an environment that you get what you deserve is the opposite of what Jesus was saying. But there was a man who was greatly reliant on this. Maybe he believed that somehow this was his fault. This must have felt like a scarlet letter a little bit. If you know the reference to that book where you now publicly claim and publicly shamed for what you may have done. This just must have felt really brutal to the ones that he seemed that seemed so close to God were the ones perpetuating this even more. The people that maybe he was hoping for healing were actually the ones who were saying he's this way because he's done something wrong. Judgment from those who you're hoping can actually heal most, must feel the most damaging. The good news about this man is he had some friends. And he had some good friends. I need friends like this. I want to be a friend like this. Not much, to, not much time earlier, there was this mass healing 
in Capernaum. The sun had gone down and people brought everybody they knew to bring healing to Jesus. Maybe they lived a little further away. They couldn't get to him in time. Maybe they weren't bold enough. Maybe they were like, ah, oh, this is kind of an effort to get there. I don't know why, but they didn't take no for an answer this time. They're like, that guy is back. We're taking advantage of it this time. They weren't going to need another opportunity to go by, so they carried their friend. You know, if only three guys showed up, that would have been tough. He needed four. Why? Someone for each corner. Someone for each corner of his mat or the stretcher. I'm wondering if the guy who headed this up is like, hey, I mean, they didn't have phones at the time. They're like, hey, cancel your plans. We're all bringing this guy. We're bringing our friend to meet Jesus today. It makes me go, what am I willing to cancel my plans for? How much do I really believe what I have or what I know about God's going to help? I wonder what time, how we use the time with these friends to develop in such a way that they were the ones who showed up for him. You know, we can spend a lot of time with people, but it's not the kind of time that actually feeds dependency on each other. It seems like you probably need to talk about this one openly. Kind of this, hey, I'm counting on you to carry a corner. Not just hoping it would happen, but some kind of intentional conversation. How cool would it be if you knew someone was counting on you to grab a corner when they needed it? Like you'd have that conversation. I mean, not literally like, hey, if I'm ever paralyzed and I'm on a stretcher. But hey, when I'm in need, I'm counting on you to not just call, just show up and be at my house. Like that kind of clarification where you're not sitting there wondering, do I, I feel like I should reach out. I don't, I don't want to bother them. Have you ever had that kind of conversation with somebody before? Maybe it's you telling somebody else, hey, I'm counting on you. I give you permission to find your way in. I mean, that's a message in itself. Maybe I should have just worked on that one a little more. Hey, I'm counting on you to grab a corner of my stretcher. Because there's common words that I have found that I use with a lot of people. Maybe you use them with each other. Hey, if you need anything, just let me know. Right? I'm here for you. You're the kind of friend or the kind of relationships that we just kind of gradually or generally, like, hey, I'm praying for you. Hey, you know I'm always there for you. I remember being at this point in my life where I'd moved to a new place and I was desperately missing my friends. And I had told this guy, like, man, I, I'm struggling because I need to rebuild my friendships. And this was as an adult. So that was kind of a hard thing to kind of say openly as a 40-year-old man, like, hey, I'm looking for friends. Will you be my friend? It's kind of like my mom would remind me in preschool, hey, go make friends. And here I found myself in a situation and this guy's like, dude, whatever you need, just know you can call me. And at that moment, I'm like, you know what I need? I need someone who will call me. Like, if, if we have to wait for me to call you, it might be too late. I need you to call me. And he's like, whoa, that's like an extra level. You're, you're friendship jumping. That feels awkward or weird. And I'm like, well, then forget it. I remember I had this friend that I would call, and he wouldn't call me back. This was the weirdest moment, I think, of my adult life. I called him to break up with him. I'm like, hey, when I call you, you need to call. I've been busy. I'm like, well, bro, well, I, we need to break up. 
He's like, that's weird. I'm like, I know. I'm just tired of counting on you and you don't reciprocate. He goes, give me one more chance. And I'm like, hey, it's not you, it's me. <laughs> we made up, kind of. It was really weird to tell my wife, hey, Lisa, I broke up with Matt today. She's like, good, it's about time. <laughs> I think there's something about having a clarifying conversation that we're not just, hey, I'm here for you. There's something about the body of Christ where it's not just sit and wait, but it's proactively go. Not to annoy each other, not to be that needy, but just to be like, hey, you can count on me, and you, the evidence of that is I'm, on, I'm knocking at your door. I'm blessing you. I'm proactively texting you, hey, I'm just praying for you today. I'm here for you. Because the enemy wants you to promise and not come through. That's really what he wants you to do. Because he wants that vision. He loves it. I absolutely believe it. I believe the enemy loves it when he's like, hey, they just made a promise and they're not going to come through. Man, this is, next, this is a new level of pain. That's what I want. So sometimes we don't even promise. But what God says is like, assure and then show up. I think I would even consider, you know, encouraging you to proactively reach out to someone even right now. I, I, don't, I don't mind if you pull out your phone and you're like, hey, I want to be that person to be the, hold a corner. They have, may have no idea what you're talking about. Like, hey, I'm not on a stretcher. It doesn't matter. I think there's something really cool about that piece. But whatever that happened, they brought him. Despite the hassle, despite the shame, they brought him. Some men came bringing to him a paralyzed man carried by four of them. And since they could not get him to Jesus because of the crowd, they made an opening in the roof above Jesus by digging through it. And then lowered the man that was lying on him. When Jesus saw their faith, when Jesus saw their faith, does that resonate at all? He didn't look at the man and see his faith. He responded to the faith of the friends. You see, their belief moved them to act. Maybe they had heard about Jesus. Maybe they had seen what he had done. Either way, it moved to action. And it was a movement towards Jesus. You know, to me, it seems like our behavior indicates the kind of gospel that we really believe. I mean, honestly. The kind of gospel that's shaping us. The kind of news that's shaping us. Are we shaped by the kind of gospel where the world just seems like it's a dangerous place? And we respond by hiding and protecting. And our actions are mostly that we must protect our ways and we argue and we fight and we recruit people to our thoughts in the name of Jesus and if you are with us, you are correct. And if you're not with us, you are dangerous. Is that the gospel that might be shaping you? We become really critical when we're shaped by that gospel. Maybe we're shaped by the kind of gospel that's kind of relative. You know, kind of relatively true. Mostly just advice for life. We respond by becoming like the things around us. And our gospel becomes one of the things that we consider. As long as it fits in with the other things we're also considering. 
We tend to forgive those who are like us, but we see those who just protect their ways as dangerous and we really want nothing to do with them. What I've seen when I drift between these two is that I'm often praying for other people to agree with me when really I should be praying that they agree with God. You see, that's the transformation right there of what gospel is shaping you. Are you praying for people to believe and agree with God? Or is it simply that they agree with you? Don't get me wrong. I've prayed a lot of prayers when I'm like, God, just help them agree with me. Especially when my daughter was 14. She just needs to agree with my way of thinking and living because my way, like I know what it's like to be a 14-year-old girl. No, I don't. (laughs) But when it changed and I'm like, no, no, they just need to agree with you, God, whatever that means. That's a different gospel. Both of those first two are not the gospel. There's, just no, there's no good news there. And that's what the gospel means. And we get stuck in one of those because of our current culture of this. And this is one of the tragedies of our current space. If I disagree with you, I need to push away from you. Because you're no longer seen as safe. And this is the, 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 the chasm, the schism that's happening around our world is that we just find people like us even more than we ever did. We don't take time to see if the actual gospel of Jesus is something different than I'm currently responding to. Because here's the truth. Culture cannot produce people who speak with bold confidence and real empathy at the same time. That's only something the gospel of Jesus Christ can produce and that the church should produce. In A.J. Savoda's book, After Doubt, he writes this. Faith is a relationship of trust between persons. To have faith is not merely an idea about God. It's to have trust in God himself as a person. You see, we have our beliefs about who God is, and when our hearts place faith in who we know God to be, the two work together. One problem is when we begin placing faith in our ideas about God over God himself. We have our ideas of who God should be, and it looks a lot like us, as opposed to us trying to look a lot more like God. But here's the good news right here that comes in. When Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralyzed man, Sons, son, your sins are forgiven. That's good news. What's better news than that? You see, Jesus was moved by the faith of the friends. Man, I need these kinds of friends. And I'm not dissing you if you're my friend. (laughs) I'm just saying, don't we all need that somebody, when my faith is down, when my faith is kind of wavering, that somebody else's faith says, let me take you to Jesus. It's not the kind of friend that goes, let me give you advice, or let me tell you where you went wrong. But he's saying, I will carry you back to the cross. No matter how many times I kick and scream, they go, nope, we're going back to the cross. Not as a place of guilt, but as a place of restoration. How powerful and amazing would it be for Jesus to go, because of your friend's faith, I bless you. Because of your faith, I bless them. You see, this is a different kind of thing. 
It's not just out of my effort God blesses me, but God is blessing this man and approaching this man because of the effort of a friend. Do we start to get the power of church? Do we start to get the power of cross-aisle ministry? When God says, because of the actions of your friends, you're now going to see me. There was a young man years ago, maybe 30 years ago, that came to faith in my youth group. He played football for me. His name was Neil. Neil was a, a unique young man, and his sister was a unique young woman, and they would often come to my house, and the first thing they did was go to my fridge to look for food. And it's not like they didn't eat at home. They just wanted to eat more. So sometimes I put a sign in my fridge, hey, Neil, get your face out of my fridge. And he's like, what? He'd laugh, and then he would just take something out of my fridge. So. <laughs> Neil was one of these guys that he really wasn't into Jesus, but then when he came to know Jesus, he was all about him. He's like, Dale, what do I do? What should I start? I said, read the book of John, and then we'll talk about it in a couple of weeks. The next day he called me. He goes, okay, I read the book of John. I'm like, no, 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 most Christians just read like a chapter a day. He's like, why? I read the whole thing. I'm like, whoa, who are you, Neil? I'm like, all right, just keep reading. Seriously, maybe a week, at most 10 days later, he goes, I finished. I go, you finished what? The New Testament. I'm like, who are you? And then he's like, should I read the whole Bible? Sure, Neil, knock yourself out. I don't know how long it took, but it didn't take long. One day, Neil came to my office. He was like 16. He's like, how long did it take you to memorize the Bible, Dale? I'm like, what do you mean? Like, I don't have the, what do you mean? Like, to find things? He goes, no, you're a pastor. Don't you have, like, the whole thing, like, memorized? I'm like, in the beginning, God created the earth. And then he goes, yeah. With with dead, I'm like, Neil, I don't have it memorized. He's like, I'm going to memorize the whole Bible. I mean, I don't know if he ever did, but, like, that's the kind of guy he was. One day we were in the locker room. Music was playing. And Neil goes, my heart for the guys on the team has grown, Dale. They need to know Jesus. They just have to know Jesus, Dale. And I'm like, awesome. Neil, invite them to, the, to youth group. He goes, I'm going to do one better. Shuts off the music. He goes, everybody quiet. You need to hear about Jesus. And I'm like, this is going to be awesome. And then Neil goes, and Dale's going to tell you about him. Go ahead, Dale. (laughs) I'm like, well, we got a pizza feed coming on. Uh, You know, sometimes people say, like, you better watch what you say in the locker room. Yeah, one day, maybe I will. (laughs) You see, there's an unbridled faith that moves some people. I think God really had a good time watching Neil. He went to college, he graduated, he started, uh, he became an archaeologist. He went digging for artifacts in Jordan to prove the Old Testament. I think God enjoyed watching Neil. Back to the crowded house. These friends show up. The tension of this moment is really off the charts. It seemed Kind of like Jesus didn't understand, to be honest, right? Like, they brought their friend. They lowered their friend. Jesus looks and says, hey, because of your faith, he says to this guy who can't even walk, your sins are forgiven. 
Doesn't it kind of seem like, couldn't you be like, hey, Jesus, this isn't really what we came for. We came for something bigger. I'm guessing the friends didn't bring him all this way to get on the roof, to cut a hole in the roof, to figure out how to lower him down. I mean, that wasn't their plan. They probably had to take their belts off, probably had maybe take their robes off, create like, you know, to drop down. They may have been on, on the top of the roof in view of everybody in their undergarments, but it didn't matter because they were doing this for their friend. They cut a hole in the roof. It says it was right over Jesus, so all the dirt and stuff is falling on Jesus' head. The Son of God, they're dropping dirt on him. They didn't do all of that to lower their friend for Jesus just to say, hey, your sins are forgiven. They didn't bring him to the miracle worker for Jesus just to say your sins are forgiven. I think about this in this moment. How many times have I been maybe disappointed by God's response to something I expected? But Jesus is doing something much bigger. You see, Jesus knows something the man doesn't know and his friends don't know, that he has a bigger problem than his physical condition. Jesus is saying to him, I understand your problems, I have seen your suffering, and I'm going to get to that. But please realize that the main problem in a person's life is never his suffering. It's never the things that cause you pain on the outside. It's the thing that separates you from God, and that's the sin on the inside. You see, when the Bible talks about sin, it's not just referring to the bad things we do. It's not just lying or lust or whatever the case may be, Timothy Keller writes. It's ignoring God and the world that he has made. It's rebelling against him by living without reference to him. It's saying, I will decide exactly how I live my life. And Jesus says, that's our main problem. Let's continue. Son, your sins are forgiven. Now some teachers of the law were sitting there thinking to themselves, why does this fellow talk like that? He's blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but sins alone? Jesus had gotten the attention of some people. The Sanhedrin, the scribes, their job literally was kind of like the Supreme Court of their time, of the Jewish, of the Jewish law. And some of them, their main law was to identify false prophets. If someone was blaspheming God, they were called to identify them and take care of them. So they had sent out kind of a, an advance party to, to, to look at Jesus, like there's a new rumbling in town, let's go shut them down. So I'm sure they situated themselves in the front row. Even if they got there late, they're the kind of people who are just like, no, 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 no. And they had the kind of fear of the people that they just would let them go by. So these man, men in their maybe robes and their garments and their posture of authority worked their way to the front and was staring Jesus down. So here's the scene. There's a religion of criticism watching the giver of grace. There's the controllers of the crowd watching the responder to a faith that brought chaos to the crowd. There was the mindset of this is the right way to approach God and they are watching how God approaches men. Immediately Jesus knew in his spirit that this was what they were thinking in their hearts. Another way of saying this is Jesus knew that by the power of the Holy Spirit what they were reasoning in their minds. 
I mean, it's not a fair fight. Jesus is counting on the Spirit of God while they're just counting on their own heads. And he said to them, why are you thinking these things? Which is another amazing thing, isn't it? Like he, they didn't say to him what they were thinking. Jesus is like, hey, I know what you're thinking. This is what you're thinking. And they're like, I wasn't thinking that. You know, they were. Which is easier to say to this paralyzed man, your sins are forgiven, or say, get up, take your mat, and walk. But I want you to know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. That is what actually killed Jesus right there. So he said to the man, I tell you, get up, take your mat, and go home. He got up, took his mat, and walked out in full view of them all. This amazed everyone, and they praised God, saying, We have never seen anything like this before. What an understatement. Of course, saying the words, I could say the words, your sins are forgiven. And it doesn't, like, it's easier to say the words. But they're just words. In their mind, they need physical truth. Now, here is something he did that is so startling. He used their system of bad belief against them. He's like, in your belief, someone is struggling physically because they have sinned. I'm going to use your own reasoning to prove to you that I'm the Son of God. I'm going to say... Your sins are forgiven. And to prove that his sins are forgiven, I'm now going to heal him. Jesus has an amazing way of engaging with people. He doesn't push them away. He comes alongside them and goes, I'm going to join you and show you something. This was an amazing risk. The risk was this. If... They allowed Jesus to continue to do this. To literally say, I am God, I have the power to forgive your sins, and I'm now going to heal you. Their orthodoxy, their belief was now under serious challenge. People were going to start to believe Jesus over them. They had to get rid of him. The very thing that they threw Jesus on the cross for was that he claimed to be God. Now catch this. This is the part that's so amazing to me about Jesus. And I wish I could say I've known this for a long time, but I'm telling you about Thursday, this hit me, and I pray it hits you. Jesus chose to go down this path that he knew this right here was going to be the very thing that caused them to want to kill him. This wasn't a predetermined thought. Jesus looked at the faith of, I'm just going to say, four common people carrying their friend on a mat. And because of their faith, Jesus goes, I'm now going to go public with being God. I'm going to go public with the very thing they're going to want to kill me for to respond to your faith. That messed with me a little bit. Because sometimes I feel like I'm not worthy to be at the feet of Jesus, but yet Jesus stepped in to the persecution of the rulers because of some common people's faith. You see, any miracle worker can say, take up your mat and walk, but only the Savior of the world can say, 
your sins are forgiven. You're right with God. So who do you see in, your sto in this story? Who do you relate with? Let's just be honest. I mean, let's just sit with God for a little bit in this and just maybe start to consider one of these things because there may be more than one. The elements of this story include the perpetrators of the shame. You know, we don't see these people, but they passed on this idea that if you're sick, there's a reason for it. You must be bad. You've done something wrong mentality. They're the people that cause other people to hide, to withdraw, to walk away. Maybe to sit in their shame. They end up in the margins of life. Not a lot of people like going to the margins. They're the part of society and maybe part of church world or religion or whatever it is that kind of just passes on these laws and rules and just makes people feel even worse about themselves. Oh, they're definitely in this story. There's the man on the mat. He may have been the recipient of public judgment. He had a life of physical struggle. He was in need of friends, the kind of friends that have faith. You see, faith changed the man on the mat. This is amazing. The faith changed the man on the mat to be the man who then carried his mat. And where did Jesus tell him to go? Home. Why? So that you can help carry somebody else's mat, probably. Maybe just metaphorically. You see, Jesus had this way consistently. There's no doubt in my mind that he, that guy was like, no, I just got healed. I, I'm off my mat. Jesus, I'll go where you go. And Jesus is like, no, no, I got a thing to do. You go home and just tell people about me. You go be evidence of that. We'll see that continually happen in Mark. Because when Jesus says something in your life, you need to go get somebody else. There's the four friends. They all needed to grab a corner of the stretcher. I wonder what plans they canceled that day to grab it. Something really cool about these friends is they had faith and they knew the direction they needed to go. They also were very aware of their friend's need. I mean, it was physical, it was obvious, but they also were the kinds of friends that were probably open in their conversations actually know what their friend was going through a little bit. That's like, that's, that's like asking the next question, isn't it? Sometimes we stop at the first question, but the next question is, tell me more about what you're going through, your life. I'll tell you about mine, how we can help each other. Hmm. You see, as followers of Jesus, we can engage with others with compassion and kindness, and full of respect only when we're deeply confident about what we believe. And this confidence comes when you personally experience God's providing presence for you. Somehow these friends knew, and they're just like, we're going. There's another group, the critics. Hmm. They reasoned in their mind what could be true or not true. They protected, they hurled, they fought for what they wanted. They saw a man healed. 
yet they would not let go of their own ideas because they were safer, because it's what they'd always known. It's pretty sad. I've been there, I think. I mean, it's tough to say that sometimes, but I've seen some amazing things, and I'm like, ah, that's outside of my thoughts. That's outside of what I know to be true. I'm going to push that one away when God's like, no, I just did something. There was the group that were amazed and praised God. They saw, they heard, and they just praised. I want to be in that group. You know, like you just see God move and you're like, woohoo. I mean, come on. Sometimes we are just doubt. But when God moves, And when we see it, you see, we don't praise God just so that we show him we're on the right team. We praise God because he's just worthy of being praised. It's just like, I mean, when's the last time you're like, whoa, God, well done. I mean, seriously, that may sound a little weird, but it's like, whoa, that was way beyond what I thought of. I mean, come on. I mean, that's what praise is. It's just well done, God. Then there's that crowded house. The crowded house is just the obstacle, of the current reason that is stopping you or me from really pressing into Jesus, right? It's full. There's no more space. There's no more room. It's hot outside. It's already, we're late. We didn't get reservations, whatever it is. We didn't press in. What are the voices, what are the words that make you feel like you're, net, you're not worth getting a place at the feet of Jesus? You see, this idea of being safe is really a confusing concept. Meaning this, sometimes it feels right and other times it just stops you from growing. I mean, none of us will say, hmm, I don't really want to grow anymore, I'm good. But many of us will say, I just want to be safe. And sometimes safe means you're being supported and encouraged. I get that. But sometimes, like, we just don't want to hear something different than what we're currently experiencing. So we're like, oh, that doesn't feel safe to me. We feel challenged and, well, that doesn't feel safe to me. Safety is a weird thing. One of the things I've seen to be true is that when a body of believers comes together and plays it safe... It's very rarely an influential body that actually makes any difference in the world around them. Here's a simple example from sports world. Nobody goes to a football game to watch the team huddle. Right? Do you ever go to a football game and go, wow, they're really huddling well today? They got in that circle. Wow. Really asymmetrical. Really nice. Well, huddle. And then the play happens, and you're like, whatever. I just, went, I just came for the huddle. No, we watch a football game or whatever, timeout, to see if they're really willing to do what they just talked about in that huddle, right? They just talked about something. Now, what are they going to do with it? And you're like, whoa, that was really bold. We huddle every Sunday, right? Or when you can make it. 
God isn't calling us just to go, one, two, ready, break, safe. Okay, let's be passive, break. No, he calls us to be bold. Not crazy. Not like, not, yeah, but bold. Bold like four friends who go to their friend and say that we're all going to grab a corner. Bold like when you get to an obstacle like a crowded house and you go, there's got to be some way. Bold that you get to the top of a house and you start cutting into a roof of a house that is not yours. Bold where the man teaching at the bottom of the hole is the son of God and you're like, hey, he's happy we're here. I hope. Bold that you figure out a way of untying your robes and lowering the man down in front of all the Pharisees and the Sadducees and all the people that might be judging you because the Son of God is right there. That kind of boldness. Because how crazy is it to follow the works of God? It's not. Because safety really only happens the closer you are to him. Not the closer you are to your own thoughts. See, the gospel that has to shape us is the gospel of good news. Jesus steps into the very thing that would get him killed right here in the book of Mark. And he did this because of the simple faith of some very common people who interrupted him, caused a commotion, brought chaos to the crowd... He stepped into the thing that would get him killed because of a man that was laying flat on his back and had no value in society's eyes. For that reason, Jesus stepped in to being killed. For that man, Jesus began to die. And I think he loved the whole thing. The next time you feel like, am I even worthy? Think about what Jesus did for someone who had no value in society's eyes. He'll do the same for you. He'll do the same for all of us. He cares most deeply about the biggest thing about you. The biggest struggle we all have is our separation from God because of our sin. He forgives it. He steps into it with you.